0: Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze.
1: Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze. And today, I have got someone who is kind of cool, actually. His name is Foz Rama, and he comes to us from believe.org. Foz, welcome to the show. Uh, Teresa, thank
0: you so much for having me.
1: Well, you're quite welcome. Can you tell us kind of a little bit, just so the audience can get some context about your growing up years, how you became a Christian, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I grew up in in rather an unusual home. My father was a Muslim. He was born in India and and came to the United States with a PhD in nuclear physics. So he was a a university professor as well. And my mom came from a a Catholic background. She was a non-practicing Catholic. And so when they married, typically, uh, if somebody marries a Muslim, the expectation is that they would convert to Islam. But because my mom was not practicing and my father was a little bit more progressive in his views as a Muslim, he never asked my mom to convert. And so I grew up in a home where I was primarily exposed to Islam as a religious system, though because my mom's of my mom's Catholic background, when we would visit her parents or her parents would visit us, uh, we would go to Catholic Church. So I actually had some exposure to Christianity in the context of Catholicism. By the time I was uh, basically finishing up high school, I had explored Islam. I began to read from the Quran. I actually uh, learned how to pray. I decided that, that Islam just simply wasn't for me because a lot of what you had to do as a Muslim to me was very burdensome. For example, prayer in Islam is an obligation. It's not an opportunity to commune with God as is true for Christians, but rather it's an obligation that you're performing before God. So that was just too much for me as a, as a young man. It was just too much burden. And plus, you know, when you're that age, there are other things in the world that interest you more than religion. And so I became an agnostic. In fact, uh, As I studied chemistry and uh, biology in college, I embraced the evolutionary paradigm, and that really fueled my my questioning about God's existence, because if you could explain all of biology with evolution, why do you need God, was the way I reasoned. But it was uh, in graduate school that I uh, encountered the creator, first uh, through the elegant designs of biochemical systems that convinced me there had to be a mind. And then it was through the person of Christ as I was challenged to read uh, the Bible and specifically the Sermon on the Mount by a pastor. And after reading the Sermon on the Mount, I was convinced uh, that Jesus was who Christians claimed him to be and embraced the Christian faith.
1: Let's let's step back. I mean, because I mean, I've heard a saying and I wanted to kind of kind of get your take on it is that Islam itself is not a religion of peace. However, there are peaceful Muslims. Is that something that you would actually agree to?
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, when you look at the history of Islam, it is very much a violent history. And of course, there are aspects of the Islamic world that are very violent. There are passages in scripture that speak very positively about Christians and Muslims, calling them people of the uh, sorry Christians and Jews. I'm sorry, calling them people of the book, and commanding Muslims to treat Christians and Jews with a high regard and to protect them when possible. But there's also passages that speak very negatively of Christians and Jews, commanding Muslims to uh, uh, you know attack them. It really depends on how a Muslim would interpret scripture. I think, by and large, most Muslims are probably peace-loving people that really do want to get along with others around them. I think when you look at the Quran, it, it does raise questions about whether or not Islam truly is is a, a religion of peace.
1: Well, and and as I recall, Muhammad, even their founder, uh, was very very violent in his approach. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. In your study of uh, biology, you said that that actually pointed to a creator. Can you kind of elaborate on that?
0: When I was a a graduate student, I really at that point had the opportunity to focus in detail on all the the molecules that make up the cell and the structure of those molecules and how they functioned. And it it was startling to me. To see just how elegant and sophisticated these systems were, and, and, and just the, the ingenuity behind those systems. And that really got me to ask the question, how do scientists explain where these systems come from? That's called the, the origin of life problem. And when I looked at you know, what the scientific community was advancing as an explanation for the origin of life, I just didn't find it compelling. And so when you look at the appearance of design in biochemistry and the inability to explain it through mechanism, well, you know, if it looks like it's designed, maybe it really is designed. And if it's designed, there must be a designer, there must be a mind. Uh, That's how I reasoned. But I wasn't really sure who that designer was. And, And so it was really people pointing me to the God of the Bible that was critical now in me taking that next step.
1: Because if evolution were true, then we really would not have anything really special about us. We really wouldn't have any reason to to value life. Would you agree with that?
0: I, I sure would. You know, I think the, the evolutionary paradigm is just horribly insidious for so many reasons. And when you start to argue that human beings are the product of an evolutionary history, what you basically are saying is, that it was mechanism alone that produced us, and when you look at the evolutionary mechanism, it's unguided, it's not directional, it's what scientists would call historically contingent. Yeah, it's predicated on a sequence of chance events. And as the late evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould pointed out, if you rewind the tape of life and replay it, human beings likely never would have even appeared, according to the nature of the evolutionary mechanism. So we just are in the evolutionary paradigm, uh, a, a happy accident. Uh, we, we are glorified apes. Uh, we really are no different than any other animal that exists. And so it really removes any idea that human beings have a special status in creation. But what it also is saying is that everything about us that we would value and, and prize is ultimately based on neurochemistry and the outworkings of of this unguided, purposeless process.
1: I mean, and you you kind of really do see that played out, especially in in the public schools. How many times have you heard about school shootings where, especially in the Columbine shooting so many years ago, if you actually look back at what those kids believed, never mind the fact that they were on psychotropic drugs, that didn't help matters much. But if you actually look back on what they believed, what they did, they did because they believed in evolutionary theory.
0: Teresa, your your point is really a very important point because if if you essentially reduce human life to lacking meaning and purpose, and if we are really no different than than the than the animals, then human life doesn't really have value. My life doesn't have value. Your life doesn't have value, and that leads to all kinds of horrible consequences. That I think sadly characterize our world today. Uh, people don't respect other, other people. People don't see intrinsic value in, in another person uh, because you know they're the product of evolution. People suffer from depression, anxiety, I think, at high levels because of this. What difference does it make if you walk into a school and just start opening fire on people if there's no meaning or purpose, ultimately? But, but even things like abortion... It's much easier to justify abortion if we're just animals, and if human life really doesn't have inherent value and worth. Or why not create embryos and, and use them for stem cells? Or why not put older people to death?
1: Yeah. Or what about what about DNA DNA splicing? I've heard about instances where we're manipulating DNA just for the sake of experimentation.
0: Right. That's a that's another example. And, I mean, we could probably spend a whole program just going through all the, the social ills in our world today and, and show that those social ills actually are a manifestation, I think, of viewing human beings as, as lacking meaning and purpose. And that, I think, is directly traceable to the question of where do we come from? You know, and if you think we are the product of evolution, then the metaphysical implications are that human life really lacks purpose and meaning.
1: And yet, and yet, if you step back and you look at Genesis 3, it's almost like we're in a conundrum. On one hand, we're being told we have no value, we have no meaning. On the other hand, you see a bunch of people that are being told to lie, you can become like God.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, you, you actually, uh, I think, see that to some degree. Um, there's uh, a very interesting uh, movement that was kind of birthed probably in the fifties and the sixties called transhumanism. Oh
1: yes. I've done a lot of research into that one.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the whole idea is that, um, that technology and science is going to be the pathway for us to attain immortality. That idea was a fringe idea and suddenly it's in the mainstream because of what you pointed out, Teresa, the, the gene editing capabilities we have now with DNA splicing and things like that. And there's other advances that are happening
1: ai a AI is huge in in that in fact, I believe Ray Kurzweil is very much heavily involved in that, so is the guy from tesla the 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 um the one who owns that company uh google apple all these guys are are hugely involved in this
0: yeah yeah, and so this is a, a prime example of where we are trying to be to take our future into our own hands and take control of quote unquote the evolutionary process to make. A new kind of post-human species, and we're we're trying to become like God, uh, you know, through, that te- through technology.
1: I almost see like a dynamic between that, but then you also look at situations like human trafficking, and I know you've had some experience with that. It's almost like you can't have both. I mean, if you believe in the evolutionary model, you cannot honestly have both. Either we mean, or either we mean nothing, or. We we are uh, uh, able to overcome and 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 become better.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and to me, this is where I think transhumanism is really very interesting, because what motivates trans tra- transhumanism is within basically an atheistic framework, and and either you just say life is meaningless and purposeless, and you kind of go into this deep dark place, or you say that we need to have some kind of hope for humanity and can we create our own hope with technology but what is undergirding the motivation of transhumanism is this sense that as human beings we we desire to connect to the transcendent we we realize that that as humans there must be a purpose for our lives as individuals there must be a destiny for humanity and so i think transhumanism is, is laying bare the need that every human being has that is ultimately found in the gospel. It's just that they're pursuing that through science and technology and trying to become gods themselves as opposed to trusting in Christ for, for that hope.
1: It's almost like it, it, it almost seems to me that in in the most desperate need to find meaning and become gods themselves, they are re- rejecting the very premise of evolution, which is that you mean nothing. And it really points back to the
0: idea that God has written eternity in our heart. Yeah, well said. That's exactly my, my view as well.
1: You actually had a, an experience with uh, human trafficking. Do you want to touch on that?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and my experience isn't necessarily that different, perhaps, than many Christians. You know, I, uh, my wife and I always have been interested in social justice issues as part of our journey as Christians. And we had an opportunity a few years ago now to travel with a team from our church thoroughly in a support role to work alongside a ministry that was at ground zero in Cambodia, combating child sex trafficking. And so we were there again in a support role. We were there just to kind of learn what they were doing as the ministry. And they really are the heroes in my view of the story. You know, they were on the front lines doing everything they can to, to rescue girls from this horrific, you know, from, from just horrific evil as a result of that experience, I really began to ask the question, how is it possible to have a country like Cambodia where something like child sex trafficking it is rampant? In fact, it becomes an integral part of their economy. There's a, a child sex trafficking tourism industry in Cambodia where men from the West will literally travel on vacation to Cambodia for the sheer purpose of buying sex with little girls. It's and how how just for context, how old are these girls? The reports that I've seen is that they can be at times as young as four or five years old. That is sick. You know, and and then on upward. It's horribly sick. And you know, and you have to ask yourself, how is this possible? And you know, I actually concluded that worldview matters. Ideas really matter and they play out they can play out in real world Ways that have horrific consequences or can have incredibly positive consequences if the worldview is shaped by a a Christian framework. And so I realized that the best thing I could do to fight child sex trafficking is to work as hard as I can to combat the ideas associated with the evolutionary paradigm and materialism and atheism and to show the credibility of the Christian worldview.
1: I follow a lot of underground media and a lot of underground podcasts from people that are believers, and they have really, really uh, done a lot to expose uh, this pedophilia garbage, not only within like Cambodia and other places, but also here within the U.S. because it is rampant here in the U.S. even. One of the things that I have done, and I get, you know, and this is a, a plug for our ministry partners page, guys. Unresolved Life has actually partnered with among the ministries that, that we work with. We have actually partnered with a company who works to rescue girls out of uh, sex trafficking in a communist Asian country. So if you guys would go there, uh, you will find a link to the t- uh, Tishua Tea Company, and just go and check it out. What they do, what they do is they rescue these girls, and then they teach them a trade. They help them on the path of healing and restoration, and they introduce them to, to Christ. And it's just a really good thing. This this whole pedophilia and sex trafficking thing has become a real heartbeat for what Unresolved Life combats. So, you know, I am totally on board with what Faz is saying here because if you believe. That life has no value, then you can treat anyone you you darn well, please.
0: You know, God bless the the your ministry partners and what they're doing. That that provides me with so much encouragement just to hear again about people who really are the heroes that are on the front lines. And you know, if you and I can do whatever we can to support them, that's that's our calling. That's our role. That's our I think our mandate. And part of it is again you know, dealing with the, the worldview issues that that justify that kind of horrific evil.
1: Well, I mean, if you actually look at it, um, and I mean, let's take it to its ultimate conclusion, because if you look at what does evolution really teach and how does it really play out, not only is it played out in the Holocaust of abortion, but it's played out in the original Holocaust because Hitler himself was a staunch evolutionist
0: yeah you know and and it's also this idea of survival of the fittest you know and, and this and it leads to the to some versions of social darwinism you, you know even this idea of eugenics is is traced to to the evolutionary paradigm and you know and the eugenics movement of the 1920s and thirties which also inspired hitler as well it, it's it's reemerging with this idea of gene editing and designer babies and and things like that and so we we're looking at a new high-tech version of of eugenics uh, that's right at our doorstep
1: which kind of i mean that i think that's even more scary because if you if if someone decides that for whatever reason you no longer fit the paradigm that they deserve so which and this paradigm is often found in uh, fabian socialism you no longer fit that paradigm and in in, in this high-tech arena if you no longer fit the paradigm, then you could be disposed of.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with this, this emerging eugenics movement, it's really, again, very very insidious because it's all under the guise of eliminating genetic disorders from the human gene pool, right? Who, who doesn't want to get rid of genetic diseases? The process of doing it means that you're going to have to gene edit embryos and that gene editing process isn't perfect. There's not it's not going to always work. And so you're going to have to select out embryos that have been successfully edited, and then you're destroying embryos that were unsuccessfully edited. But then it now creates this idea that if you have a genetic disease, if you have a genetic disorder, that you somehow are not of the same value or worth uh, to society as somebody who is quote unquote genetically pristine. And who gets to decide. What is genetically pristine and what isn't? It's really scary stuff.
1: Well, not not only that. If you actually take a look at the uh, eugenics movement, you know, a lot of people. Well, Hitler was this horrible person. Where did he learn eugenics from? He learned it from Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, and 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 that was started here in the U.S. I mean, I I mean, I mean, and and I, I mean, I know I'm bringing in history, but it just seems like if we don't realize where this this pernicious, this garbage written idea came from, we're going to repeat it.
0: And and it does sure look like we're repeating it. And to me, you know, the, the way to battle this is to make a case for the, the credibility of not only the Christian worldview, but the idea that as human beings, we really are exceptional in a way that uh, lines up with what scripture teaches. That is, we can make it, it, we need to be able to make a case that human beings really are unique and exceptional that we bear the image of God.
1: Well, let's, let's go into that. Why, what makes us exceptional? Why is it that, that, that we can, we have the goal to say that we are, are something more than the product of what we are created from, or why would, why would we actually bear an image of a God? Why?
0: You know, it's interesting because in the, evolutionary framework, the idea is that as human beings, we only differ in degree, not kind from any other creature. This was actually Darwin's words in his book, The Descent of Man. And yet there is a growing number of anthropologists and primatologists who are not necessarily friends to the Christian faith, who are working in an evolutionary context as they try to understand the origin of humanity and are increasingly, on the data alone, Forced to conclude that we really are different as human beings, that we really stand apart, and the qualities that they think that make us stand apart, that makes it make us exceptional, is essentially the same kind of qualities that we would ascribe uh, to the image of God. You know, so for example, there's a, a recognition now that only human beings have this capacity that. It's called symbolism. And what that means is that we have an ability to represent the world with symbols and even to represent abstract ideas with symbols. And we can communicate with one another through language, through music, through art, even through body ornamentation, ideas with these symbols. But we can do other things as well, that we can manipulate those symbols. We can embed symbols one within another to create all these alternative hypotheses, which allows us to anticipate the future and to, to dissect and to process the past, to, uh, to problem solve, to engage in abstract interactions with one another, that we, we have what's called theory of mind, that we recognize that other people have minds like us and that we have an ability to connect with one another through this theory of mind capability. And then finally we are able to engage with one another in these very complex social structures. And when you put those all together, uh, those essentially are, in my view, scientific descriptors of the image of God.
1: So you're saying that because we have the ability, are you talking about, when you're talking about symbols and pointing symbols, are you talking about something like hyperglyphics or something like early, early language?
0: Well, y- y- yes, all of that. In, in other words, uh, that symbolism manifests itself in the form of language, both written and in and, and, and verbal language. And it also so words, in a sense, are like these ephemeral symbols. Uh, but music is symbolic, art is symbolic, uh, uh, you know, as well as even wearing jewelry because the, the jewelry itself oftentimes will symbolize something about that individual wearing. That jewelry, rather, what particular group they belong to, their status in the group, all you know, all those kinds of things. And so we are unique in, in this collection of attributes. And what's interesting to me is you now have a growing minority of evolutionary biologists who are saying, in effect, Darwin was wrong. We really are unique. We really are exceptional. And this allows us to make a, a scientific case that if we are exceptional and we're exceptional in a way that's consistent with the image of God, then this image of God concept that's so important to Christianity actually has credibility. When the Bible says we're the crown of creation, when when the Bible says that we are unique, uh, that we can enter into a relationship with the Creator, that, you know, that we have inherent worth and value, these uh, concepts that are connected to the image of God are really being affirmed by the fact that we are are so exceptional, that gives human life value.
1: And I think that, that that very thing right there is something that Satan attacks. I mean, how often in my own life is uh, you, you're not you're you're not worth that. Just just leave it alone. You know? How many times has he has he does he really come after us and try and convince us that what we're doing or what, what we're about really isn't worth anything.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and that's true. And, And it's easy, I think, to fall prey to that kind of deception, because we're surrounded by a culture where that message is being reinforced everywhere we turn. And so it's just so important for, number one, us as Christians to really have a proper understanding that our value and our worth has nothing to do with what we do or what we've done, whether good or bad. It has to do with the fact that God made us in a special way to be, to inherently have value. And we have value because we bear his image. And because we bear his image, we can be in a relationship with him unlike any other creature that he has made. And it's in that image of God concept in Christianity takes on an elevated form compared to Judaism because it's in Christianity that Jesus, as God, as the second person of the Trinity, took on human form. And he's the the, the perfect image of God. And and taking on human form, he died so that we could be reconciled to the creator. And so the image of God for Christians is even elevated to a much higher level than you would see that concept playing out in Judaism as well. So we have to remember that our worth and our value comes from who we are as human beings, the way we've been made fundamentally, but our worth also is affirmed by the fact that Christ. Sacrificed himself for us.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, and, and I mean, even if you go back and you look at Judaism and you look back at the uh, books of the Old Testament, I was just reading where God said, you know, hey, if you find a, a a a foreign person and you marry them or something like that, even if you find you don't want to, you know, keep them as a wife anymore, you're not to treat them harshly. God essentially ascribed value and said, you're not to treat women harshly. Uh, not like the pagan nations. I mean, it just seemed like, even in Judaism, God said, "No, you're going to do
0: things better." I mean, what I always find fascinating is the is the Old Testament prophets, and particularly uh, you see this in Isaiah. You also see this as well with Amos, where they are condemning uh, Israel in 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 Judah for idolatry, but also for neglecting the poor for Their acts of injustice against the marginalized in society. That is, to treat a marginalized person poorly, it was placed on the same level as committing idolatry. And that makes sense if you think that human beings who bear God's image have inherent worth and value. And what you do to a human being that bears God's image is the same thing that you're doing to God himself because of, of, of that image that we bear
1: that is highly interesting because if if you are treating the very least of these with contempt then aren't you saying that god's what god created is it really worth what what he said
0: yeah that that's exactly right you know and you know, to me the, again this is where the image of god concept becomes so important because you know the way i think about it is that the way i treat another human being again is how i'm treating god and so if i'm cursing another human being or treating them unfairly, I'm, in, in effect, cursing the image of God. I'm, and, and that's an, an affront or an assault to God. And at the same time, if I serve and I love another person who bears God's image, it's as if I'm loving and serving God himself. You know, you see this idea played out in the prophets. And, it, and it's just intriguing that, again, the prophets would equate social injustice and idolatry. And I think the image of God concept explains that.
1: Well, in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to people, he tells his disciples on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you because you didn't do this to the least of these. You did not do it to me.
0: That's yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful illustration, I think, of that that very concept.
1: Let me kind of shift gears. what if someone is listening and they and they maybe they're coming on this episode for the first time and they're saying I have grown up in an evolutionary and atheistic viewpoint for most of my life, but I want something more. What would you say to that person?
0: Uh, when it comes to the origin of humanity, there are some really provocative scientific discoveries that that suggest that the biblical account of human origins is really true. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about this idea that there's growing evidence, even among evolutionary biologists, that maybe human beings really are exceptional in a way that lines up with the image of God. And what's really intriguing to me is that these qualities that that separate us from all other creatures seem to show up explosively out of nowhere in the archaeological record. And so when, when human beings appear on the scene out of nowhere, suddenly we start we start seeing creatures that can engage in symbolism that, uh, that are producing incredibly sophisticated technology and art and music that have language capabilities uh, and it's only associated with human beings and that sudden appearance is fact is is referred to uh, by scientists as the sociocultural big bang it's just i don't know where this be- behavior shows up and and people have even referred to this as. Essentially, Darwin's problem that we can't really account for how all of this shows up suddenly in an evolutionary context. But on on top of that, uh, evolutionary biologists studying the origin of humanity sometimes will look at genetic variability and from that try to extract information about our very early history. And to everybody's surprise, uh, when you look at a particular genetic marker called mitochondrial DNA, you can show that every person on the planet traces an origin back to a single sequence that people think corresponds to a single female individual that they've dubbed mitochondrial Eve in the scientific literature. The same is true with Y-chromosomal DNA as a genetic marker, because you can show that every man on the planet can trace an origin back to a single ancestral sequence that had been dubbed Y-chromosome Adam. People, again, think that this may be an actual male individual. And so now evolutionary biologists interpret this in an evolutionary framework, but what's really provocative is you see these pointers that that even the evolutionary paradigm can't seem to masquerade that points to the credibility of the biblical account of human origins. Well, if the biblical account of human origins is true, it means that we are made Uh, to be in a relationship with a creator. And it also tells us in Genesis that that relationship was damaged because of Adam and Eve's rebellion that has infected all of us, that we're separated from a creator. But of course, it's it's through the gospel that we learn that we can be reconnected to the creator, we can be reconciled to the creator through the sacrifice of Christ, who, again, is God who took on human form. So to me, the science is affirming a foundational idea that the entire gospel is built upon. And if we really are made in God's image and we have inherent worth and value, that to me is incredibly exciting and and can literally change a person's life. Amen. Amen. And
1: so what if someone hears that and goes, well, yeah, I want that relationship. I want, I want to know that I have worth. I, I'm tired of feeling growing up and, and and feeling worthless.
0: Yeah, well, you know, to me, the the way in which you have that relationship is to pray to God and to and to pray to God in in the name of Jesus and and just simply say, I want that relationship. I want to be in a relationship with you, and I don't want to be separated from you, and and I realize that I've I've fallen short; that I have done things that are wrong, and, and ask for forgiveness. And God will grant that forgiveness to you through the person of Christ. It's not complicated to enter into that relationship. And then I would say, find people who are Christians and and tell them what you've done, and ask for their guidance that they can help you to to grow and and, and, and can introduce you to a, a church community where that message will be reinforced. Um,
1: Amen. Amen. And I would say uh, along that line, guys, I would say, you know, if you have accepted Christ, um, find yourself, I mean, there's a lot of churches out there, but find yourself a Bible teaching and Bible believing church. This is crucial. Um, and, and, and guys, if you have prayed and you, and, and you've confessed yourself as a sinner and you've accepted, you've asked Christ to come in and, uh, uh, become Lord of your life, you know, send me an email, let me know, Teresa at unresolved.life. I would love to hear about this and I would love to pray, uh, for you and over you and encourage you. Foz, do you have any like final thoughts as we kind of kind of hit, hit the home stress. Do you have any final thoughts going forward? Maybe what what do you see coming out of uh, some of these uh, topics that we've discussed and
0: uh, so on and so forth? Well, you know, uh, to me, I think when things look the darkest, that's when light can shine the brightest. And we are moving into a very frightening time in human history, again, because of the, the growing Level of, of secularism and skepticism that I see in our culture and our society. I'm hearing that Generation Z is the most atheistic generation that has ever existed. We see things like transhumanism on the forefront, but that's in that in this very dark place. If we are willing to prepare ourselves to defend the Christian worldview, to articulate the Christian worldview, and to, to, to show the power. Of the Christian worldview through our lives, and, and that we can actually have a, a real impact on individuals, and we can have, I think, an impact, impact on our culture. So things are, are looking bleak at times. They look dark. But again, that's when the, the light of Christ can shine the brightest, and the Christian message is going to have its greatest power and potency. So I would say, don't give up and prepare yourself, and and pray for those opportunities, because God will provide them for you.
1: Amen. Amen. And with that, guys, I believe that's that's kind of the clearing call for unresolved. That's what we're here for. Um, you know, we're here to, to deal with the topics that, that in this day and age are so prevalent and just need to be dealt with. I mean, Isaiah, Isaiah 118, come let us reason together that your sins be as scarlet. I will make them white as snow. You know, let's, let's deal with the topics as they come up and let us not shy away because we don't think our worldview holds water. It, It really does. So, Foz, thank you so much
0: for coming on the show. Teresa, thanks for having me. I just enjoyed getting to know you and talking with you. God bless you and your ministry. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.